0: We're gonna do this new series. I'll explain a little bit more about it in a minute, but I wanna tell you something that I saw this week. I saw um, a video or actually several videos by this former worship leader who's either like deconstructed his faith or become an atheist or so I don't know, something like that. In any case, he and his wife or his partner, or again, I don't know, woman that he's with, Uh, in these videos are putting out these songs, okay, they sound like praise songs, kind of like folky, like praise songs that they're putting out on like social media, on TikTok and stuff, and they're singing these passages from the Bible that are like the most violent or graphic parts of the Bible to kind of, I think the intent, I I I don't know their hearts, but it seems like the intent is to ridicule the Bible to To make it look like, oh, look, this is they're seeing this stuff, but this stuff is in the Bible too, and you know it's really violent or it's really graphic or whatever, and so there they go, and I'm sure it helps get TikTok views, which, as we know, is the most important thing. Um, so, because no one will ever forget whatever they see on TikTok in five seconds as they scroll to the next thing. In any case, uh, you know, popular atheists, the the folks that you hear about. Um, Uh, online or on television or whatever, they often do the same kind of thing, which is they ridicule or use humor to try to make the Bible or Christians seem silly. That's sort of their tactic. The problem is, of course, that ridicule is not argument. Ridicule is an argument. It's not an argument to ridicule something. It's often a very low form of thinking. That ignores context and nuance and sort of appeals to the desires of people to be cool and fit in. So when you make the ridiculing joke about the Bible, everybody's supposed to like laugh and like be part of the the joke so they can be cool and they can fit in. That's sort of their thing. Well, the desire to fit in is often a desire that leads to following the crowd straight to hell. It's a problem with fitting in. Just ask the followers of Nazism or 20th century communism or 18th and 19th century slavery or or, or I can go down the line where everybody just said, okay, I don't want to rock the boat. And it led to, you know, injustice, death, oppression, evil, all those kinds of things. That's what happens when you go with the crowd. Even high schoolers figure this out, you know, usually within maybe a year or two of being out of high school, you're like, what was going on there? That was crazy. Like the peer pressure and and the whatever, it's seen as ridiculous. Not a way to find truth by following the crowd for what's cool. But that's what atheists and others like that appeal to when they make jokes about the Bible. Uh, They expect you to laugh, they want you to join the crowd. Well, here's the thing. I am not laughing because I don't need to fit in with those who dishonor the word of God. And I just want to make that clear. You shouldn't be laughing because you should not fit in with those who dishonor the word of God. There is only one who I need the approval of, and that's God. I'm looking to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, not, you're so cool, David, which is a good thing, because I'm not at all cool, so <laughs> it's never going to happen. So the other one I'm, I'm praying and hoping will happen. Here's the thing, facetiousness is no substitute for serious thought and the seeking of truth. If you're wondering what facetiousness is, I've got a definition for us. Definition of facetious, according to Google and Oxford languages, so you know it's good. Oxford sounds smart. It's this, facetious, treating serious issues with deliberately inappropriate humor. Flippant, that's what facetiousness is. That's where a lot of the argumentation comes from. That's these, this guy and his wife or whatever, they're playing these songs and being flippant and facetious about very serious things in the scripture to try to confuse or cause uh, anguish among people. Okay. C.S. Lewis handled the problem of facetious people making fun of Christianity and the Bible pretty simply and clearly uh, when he dealt with some people, those who were making fun of the Christian idea of heaven. This is what he said. There is no need to be worried by facetious people who try to make the Christian hope of heaven ridiculous by saying they do not want to spend eternity playing harps. They, I would love to be able to play the harp, by the way seriously. Have you guys ever seen the people that get, that's amazing. But anyway, the answer to such people is that if they cannot understand books written for grown-ups, they should not talk about them, which also is a little you know, uh, facetious or pushing back a little bit, but there's some truth to that. And I agree with C.S. Lewis in general, but here's the thing. People will talk about the Bible and they do so regularly. So as a Christ follower, we need to be prepared to answer their challenges. 1 Peter 3, 13 through 70. By the way, there are Bibles that look just like this. They're in the seats in front of you. You can use those to read along with us today, although it will be on the screen. You can look in your phone or whatever. But if you don't have a Bible at home or yours is broken, feel free to take one of these home as our gift to you. We want you to have the Word of God in your home. We want you to read your Bible. Listening to me or the people who preach up here, whatever, that's good. That's great. But nothing will speak to you like the Word of God and the Holy Spirit inspiring you and teach you from the word of God. So make sure that you take one of these if you don't have one. Uh, or if you haven't been reading yours, maybe a new one will help. So grab one. These are really nice Bibles too. They got bigger words, which I need because I can't see anymore or as well anymore. So grab one of those. Anyway, 1 Peter three thirteen through 17. And who is he who will harm you if you become, if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Now here's the thing you are going to be persecuted in different ways, okay? One of those ways is when you hear somebody being flippant and facetious about the word of God and about your faith in Jesus Christ. They're persecuting you, there's no question. They are making fun of you, they are being facetious, they're being flippant about the things that are the most holy and the most important to you. That's the smallest form of persecution, really one that you should be able to deal with, okay? there are a lot worse. Go to China, go to India, go to some places where there's real persecution, where it's more like, am I going to die for going to church today? But this kind of persecution does happen too, and it's a real thing, and you have to deal with it. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense, to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So here's the thing. People are going to come to you and they're going to ask you about the hope that is within you. Now, they may not actually use that term. Tell me about the hope that is within you. But they're going to bring things up they're going to bring up the Bible. They're going to say, you believe that? Why do you believe that? What about this? What about that? And you need to have an answer, an answer in meekness, respect, reverence for that person, love as a person made in the image and likeness of God, and actually be able to answer their question about the Holy Scriptures. You need to be able to do that. It's not about saving faith. You never have to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ or the word of God, the scriptures. You never need to be ashamed about that. But you should be able to explain it. It's about speaking truth to those who take lightly the things of God or who misunderstand the Bible because of bad teaching, which has happened a lot, or poor thinking. Sorry, after worship, I have to get a little hydration. I'm getting older. You've probably noticed. All right, I got a lot of the gray hairs in the beard, and they grow longer than the other ones. You got to, it's a whole thing. Don't get old, kids. Pray for the rapture. All right. We all should be right. The definition. I'm sorry. I, I just skipped to you. Okay. So think about this. All right. Think about this. Think about this. The Supreme Court of the United States will often write opinions that are thousands of words long to interpret a short section of a law or a statute, or a short section of the Constitution, they will write thousands of words to interpret that little short section. And they are, by and large, because of how much they do it, pretty much the experts on interpretation of the Constitution and law and so on in this country. Let's just say they've put in their 10,000 hours and 10,000 more, and 10,000 more. That's before they get there. And then they read all day, and they do this kind of thing. So they're really, really, really good at it, and it takes them thousands of words to explain very short sections of what humans have written in the law. Now, the Bible is infinitely more important than any law in the United States, or any state, or anything like that. And if the top experts in their field, in in the legal world, take thousands, thousands of words to apply an interpretation, say, of the Constitution. Why are people persuaded by an interpretation of the Bible done with a few words by someone who is a non-expert on TikTok? (laughs) Right? We're like, hey, when it comes to the Constitution, it's all these guys and girls who have done this for a million years and they know what they're doing, whatever, and they got these long opinions, we've got to read but somebody who says something about a a section of the Bible and they're just like, blah, 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 with music behind on it, with a TikTok dance, and people are like, yeah, that makes sense. They probably know what they're talking about. Maybe we should think a little bit more about that. Mostly the reason we do it is because we don't want to do the work of thinking. I'm talking about as a culture, as a society. We have shown ourselves to not want to do the work of thinking. Same thing happens when the Supreme Court puts out a thousand word, thousands, four or five thousand word opinion, and it gets boiled down to a quick talking point that that's then on CNN and Fox News and MSNBC and people go, yeah, that's what it means. Like, no, it's not. Read it. Now, I'm not suggesting you guys go read Supreme Court opinions. They're super boring, unless you're me and you think it's really exciting. But people don't want to do the work of thinking. Now, possibly in this case with the Bible, people don't want to do the work of thinking because they don't want to serve the Lord. So they want to allow themselves to be confused. I've been there before. Really not wanting to walk with the Lord and allowing myself to be confused. Not really doing the thinking so that I can keep doing whatever I wanted to do. I think that's a lot of what goes on. I don't really know the full answer to why the problem is about people allowing themselves to be so confused about what the scripture says. Other than that, there are spiritual forces of evil that battle against the truth and that battle against your neighbors to keep them from knowing and understanding the truth. That's a reality. That's why we put on the whole armor of God. As we read in Ephesians 6, beginning at verse 10, you can read about the whole armor of God. Verse 17, we read this, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. This is part of your armor. It should be going on every morning when you wake up. You should have the sword of the Spirit, the word of God. This is what Hebrews says about it in Hebrews 4, 12. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. This, the word of God, is incredibly powerful. But you got to know how to use it. If you put a sword in the hands of a young kid, something bad's going to happen, right? Usually, I don't know if you guys ever saw the old YouTube video of Star Wars kid. Anybody ever see that? Kid starts this is like going all over the place. He was filming himself. And somebody found it. it, was really horrible. Somebody found it, they put it online. It was really, really funny, um, but really, really sad at the same time. But the point is, some people look like Star Wars kid with the Bible. They don't know what they're doing. They're flailing all over the place. They don't really understand what it says. They don't understand how to explain it to other people. And so they're not good. If you're gonna be a good swordsman, you gotta know your sword. You gotta know your sword. That's what we're supposed to do because knowing the word helps us to deal with those of whom Romans 1.22 says, professing to be wise, they became fools. You have to deal with those people every day in this country and all over the world. Those people are seeking to spread their foolishness to your family and your friends and your children and your spouses. Anyone you know who's not a Christ follower, they want to spread their foolishness to. And they want to spread confusion among those who are Christ followers. Those who don't know how to use their sword well, those who don't understand the scripture well, they want to sow confusion for you. So when we don't train our young people well in the word of God, and then they see a TikTok video where somebody's singing this violent passage of Leviticus or whatever, and they're like, what? That, the Bible says that? I don't understand. Why does it say that? Of course, it's completely out of context. But then they hear it, and now they're confused. Why? Because they weren't built up to read the whole scripture, to know it, and to understand what that's about and what the context for that is. And so then they get confused. And then you see young people coming through you know, early in college and in their young adult life, they're deconstructing. They're finding a more you know, gentle and kind Christianity, or whatever it is that they're trying to do. And you go, why is this happening? And the answer is because we haven't done the work. That's why our youth group, they just spend their time, an hour and a half, couple hours, just studying the Bible. And they love doing it, by the way. We brought them up here and said, let's turn on the, t-ts, t-ts, you know, like the kids do, you know, whatever. And let's do the whole thing. They were like, we want to go downstairs and study the word. It's a very serious and important thing to understand what the Bible says. So let's answer the controversy by answering the objections leveled against Christians about the Bible and the objections aimed directly at the Bible. This series called Controversy, the Tough Passages of the Bible, uh, will, Lord willing, deal with a number of controversies over the Scripture. And, Lord willing, will bring us back and actually click into our study in Romans when we study what may be the most controversial passage of Scripture among Christ followers, starting in Romans 9. Some very controversial stuff. If you guys have heard about Calvinism and Arminianism and all that kind of stuff, that's all right there in that part of Romans. We're going to get into it. It's going to get fun, um, but that's a a real controversy among Christians. We're going to deal first with some controversies that are more out in the world. So let's begin. This week, I'm starting with what I'm calling the popular controversies. The popular controversies. These are the ones that you'll find people talking about all over the place. They'll come up in your conversations. They'll come up in your social media feed. These are the kinds of verses quoted regularly and out of context by regular old people all the time. So let's first deal with judgment. Pastor Jimmy Inman, who you guys got to see if you were uh, watching our services for the last several weeks when we were in Tennessee, you got to see him preach. Um, And he's actually been here before also. He says this first verse we're going to deal with is the most popular verse around these days. That's what he thinks more popular than John three sixteen, more popular than other verses like that. This is the one. It's Matthew 7, 1, and the verse is, judge not that you be not judged. Okay, Very popular verse. If I had a nickel for every time someone quoted this verse, I'd have a lot of nickels. I don't know how much money it would be. I, I, didn't, I didn't calculate it, but it's gonna be a lot. It'd be a lot. It's usually aimed at people uh, who are being chided for being judgmental, right? This usually means someone is pointed out, that someone else's behavior is immoral, and the other person quotes this verse to them. Judge not, lest ye be judged, right? They do that. If you say that, say, sexual immorality or lying or cheating or drug and alcohol abuse are morally wrong and not the plan of God for his people, you'll get this old standby verse. Judge not, lest ye be judged. Checkmate, I guess, right? They got you. It says it right there. I mean, Jesus said it, so it must be true. I guess I cannot think anything that anyone does is actually wrong or else I'm disobeying the Bible by judging. That's the idea, right? That's the idea, they got us, they got us, we can't say anything about their stuff, which is a bummer because it really helps me to be taught the wrong things that I've done or am doing so that I can repent and change and follow God more closely. I really want people to tell me those things so it's a bummer that nobody's allowed to. Of course, I'm being facetious this verse is part of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew's, Matthew chapters 5 through 7, which we studied a while back in our Right Side Up series. If you want to go back on the app or online, you can YouTube, the YouTubes, whatever, you can watch that. Um, but when you take several words from, from a whole sermon, like the Sermon on the Mount, uh, and a sermon by Jesus, which you really shouldn't misquote him, and use them as a gotcha against anyone who would judge you, you are missing the context. Earlier in this sermon, I said this. I said, ridicule is not argument. It is often a very low form of thinking that ignores context and nuance and appeals to the desire of people to be cool and fit in. Now, you could go home and say, Pastor David said, be cool and fit in. Right? You could. So I need the newest Justin Bieber tape, Dad. I don't know what's cool anymore. I don't know. People don't have tapes anymore, right? We had a lot of tapes when I was a kid. But that's what you could do, you could be, Pastor David said that, but that wouldn't be true because it would be out of context and silly in that context, right? That was part of a larger thing that I was saying that was actually the opposite of what you're trying to say. Now in the same way, quoting Jesus from one place in the Bible, literally to tell people they cannot quote Jesus in other places of the Bible where he talks about uh, people's behavior seems kind of silly seems kind of silly and out of context. Let's listen to the rest of the section here Matthew 7, 1 through 5. We'll get the rest of the the context and see if it may change our minds a little bit on what this is talking about. It's going to take me a second. See if I can beat you. Here we go. Oh, this is embarrassing. I'm so slow at this. Everyone's already there taking a nap. All right, here we go. Now I can't even read it because my eyes. All right, judge not that you be not judged for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now, here's the deal. if I can't judge anything, I can't judge that there's a plank in my eye, that there's a speck in your eye or anything else, right? If I don't have any judgment, I can't do that. How am I supposed to first remove the plank in my eye without judging my own self? And then, and then it says, once I've done that, help remove the speck in your eye if I can't judge, if I can use no judgment at all. It doesn't seem to be what he's talking about. And there's more, by the way, down in verse 10, in the same section, or down about 10 verses in verse 15, it says this, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. I'm wearing wool. That's bad. All right. <laughs> but inwardly, they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by the fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. This is the same thing. He's just, this is literally just right after this. Now explain to me how we're supposed to judge false prophets by their fruits if we can never judge. We can't, right? Right? For to judge the fruit of a false prophet who comes to us in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves, we have to do some judging. There's got to be some judgment used. If we can never judge, then we can't judge their fruits. And if we can't judge their fruits, then what happens to the church when these ravenous wolves come in? The wolves destroy us. Clearly, we have to have some judgment. Now, in 1 Corinthians 5.12, we're clearly told to judge those in the church. In that same chapter, we're told to remove those. From the church who are in unrepentant sin, not even to eat with them. So, judgment is a real deal. But how can we judge as we're called to do and then not judge at the same time? How do we do that? Well, it's impossible not to judge in the sense of recognizing and calling out immorality. It's impossible. When you see it, you make the judgment. It's very easy to see, it's written on your heart. Right. the next time that you say hey I, you know maybe maybe you shouldn't be doing that thing and somebody says to you judge not lest you be judged just smack them in the face and take their wallet smack them in the face take their wallet and then when they say hey judge not i'm kidding please do not take that out of context and go smack people in the face and take wallets that's illegal It's a bad idea. It's not very loving. But you will find out that their principles do not match the verse they just quoted to you because they're going to judge as well they should because it's wrong to smack them in the face and take their wallet. And it's okay for them to tell you that. That's not what Jesus was talking about, right? Literally, when the verse is quoted after a statement of judgment, the very quoting of the verse becomes an act of the same kind of judgment. If I say, you should stop lying. And you say, judge not. I am claiming you did something wrong, lying. And you are claiming I did something wrong, judging. We're doing the same thing. You can't use it without breaking it. That's the problem. It could literally be an infinite loop. Think about this, judge not lest ye be judged. And since that's a judgment, the other guy can say, no judge not lest ye be judged. No judge not lest ye be, and then you just go forever. <laughs> just whoever got loudest would win or got tired first or something. It would work every time, and that is why it is an absurdity. It's an absurdity to interpret it the way these people want you to interpret it. There is a well-known rule for interpreting the law, and it says this, the legislature never intends an absurdity. It's just a rule when we're we're, um, interpreting, say, a statute, a law that that the legislature has written. What it means is that if a judge has a, a law in front of her, and somebody comes and says, hey... I think that you should interpret it this way, and the interpretation the person offers would lead to an absurdity. The judge will reject that absurdity because the legislature could not have intended this absurdity. They must have intended it to be interpreted in a way that would make sense. Now, some of you are thinking, wait, our legislature? They seem pretty absurd. But no, uh, the fact is, rarely rarely would you put a law together that was intended to be an absurdity. It's not the case, right? And I'm so much more so or as we'd say in Latin, a fortiori. We say that in Latin, in, in the law. It's really fancy. Just means so much more so with God, right? If the legislature doesn't intend absurdity, certainly God doesn't intend absurdities, right? So obviously that's the case here. It would be absurd to think that Jesus meant that people were never to judge anything ever, right? Or every judge that we have would be sinning every time he or she put on that black dress thing. Whatever that thing is. It's a weird thing, right? It's like they're in a choir or something. I don't, I don't get it. I have a friend who's a judge. A couple of them. I don't, know, I don't know what's underneath the dress. I don't know what's going on with those guys. Knowing those guys, I don't know. Summertime, I could see it. Anyway, don't want to see it. I should stop. All right. Moving on. You, you couldn't judge anything. You could never call the police. Somebody could be like stabbing you and you'd be like, I can't judge this. I can't call the police right? It's so silly. It's so silly. That's not what the verse is talking about, okay? So what is it talking about? Well, it's talking about jurisdiction and condemnation, okay? That's what the verse is talking about. It is telling you that you are not God, and so you are not in a position to know the heart of another person, and your job is not to condemn a person. That's God's jurisdiction. That's what it's telling you. That's God's jurisdiction. His jurisdiction means the, the right or the authority to speak the law. It's God's authority to speak the law as to what's going on inside your heart and as to your salvation or condemnation. That's God's call. And so you ought not to be going around making God's calls for him. You are responsible rather only for a certain kind of judgment, and it's not that kind of judgment. Now, that doesn't mean you're not supposed to use good judgment to know right from wrong and to seek to do good and reject evil, right? But you ought not to go around spending your time pointing out everyone else's sins and not dealing with the sins in your own heart. Certainly you shouldn't be doing that, going around and be like, what did you do today? Well, that was wrong, and that was wrong, and that was wrong, and never thinking about your your own sin. That's, That's the kind of thing we're talking about here. You should remove the planks in your own eyes, but you should definitely point out to others the sinful heart attitudes and behaviors that will result in their judgment by the one true judge. You aren't the one bringing the judgment, but there is one that is given jurisdiction to judge the world Jesus Christ the righteous. Just as Paul tells the folks in Athens in Acts 17, 30 31. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. The assurance of the judgment comes in the power of the resurrection. That's the proof of it. Jesus, the righteous one, is the judge of the world, and he will judge, not you, him. Not you. Him. That doesn't mean that you can't have good judgment and make good judgments. That doesn't mean that you can't call a sin a sin. The question is, who's the one who gets to condemn or save? That's Jesus. So this is a hard attitude issue, right? If you're using a judgment with somebody or you're condemning them, if I'm coming to you and saying, hey, I think you have a real problem with lying. I'm saying it because I want you to be closer to Jesus and come back to him, not because I'm the one who wants to punish you. Even if it gets to the point of removing somebody from the church because of their sin, the whole point is to turn them over outside of the protection of the church that Satan might destroy their flesh, that they might come back. That they might come back. That's the whole point. Our judgment, our pointing out those things is for the benefit of the person. Not for condemnation, not to cast them aside, not to act like they're worse than us, but for their edification, for the building up. Those who help each other who are in sin and help bring them back, that's a great, wonderful thing. Being careful lest we also be tempted, right? The scripture is clear about that. But that's not condemnation. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can do that. There is a judgment. There is a judgment coming. And it is a very serious matter. I was driving around the other day and thinking about how people are living in their own illusions, built by their wealth and their broken worldviews, that everything's okay today and everything's gonna be okay tomorrow and everything's gonna be okay the next day and I'm just gonna keep getting more comfortable, more wealthy, sort of that dream of having everything work out the way I want it to. Right? That's the illusion they're living in, they're not understanding that we are right now on a bullet train to the end. And the day will come not long from now where your money and your house and your car and your kids who are on the honor roll and all that stuff that we get all worked up about, they won't be thinking about that at all. They'll be thinking about the judgment of God that is being poured out on the earth. Everything will change. All of their false assumptions and illusions will go away and they will be trying to survive. That's the reality. Praise God that we weren't made for that judgment and that the church will be raptured. Those who don't believe in that, I'm just like, what do you want to happen here? Like you got to believe in a pre-tribulation rapture just because it would really be rough to not have it, right? Like it's of my own interest, but it also is what the Bible says. Anyway, um, you will not have to deal with that if you're a Christ follower, but for those who aren't, their illusions are going to be shattered. They're going to be shattered because real judgment is really coming. On the earth, and then at the great white throne of judgment that you can read about in Revelation. The Messiah is returning. And when he comes back in judgment on the day of the Lord, it will be a terrible day, a terrible thing for those who rejected his free, gracious gift of salvation. That's the reality. That's where you need to turn the conversation. When somebody talks about Matthew 7, 1, judge, not lest ye be judged. You say, you're right. I'm not the one to condemn. I I can make a judgment about whether what you're doing is right or wrong, but that's not what is important. What's important is that God is here laying out the distinction between my jurisdiction and his. But what you need to be understanding if you're not a Christ follower is that his jurisdiction is legitimate. It is legitimate and you need the gospel or you will experience it in a negative way, a very negative way by experiencing death and hell. That is why we as his disciples, as Christ followers, need to know the Bible. We need to be able to give the good news to the world that they can avoid the second death. They can avoid that. People can avoid hell and torment and separation from God because of what God has done. John 3, 16 through 17. You may have heard this before. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. But there's more to the passage. It keeps going. How about John 3:18 through 20? He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. Here's the thing. There's two sides to this. There's a side that I desperately desire for you. That I want you to give my life and pour myself out that you might have if you don't already have it. And that is the side of salvation, the free gift of grace the avoidance completely of judgment, that when judgment comes, we get to go, Jesus, 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 he's in my place. You look to him instead of to me. Because if you look to me, I deserve judgment. I deserve death. I deserve separation from God. I deserve hell. I deserve all of it. But if you look to him, he's perfect and holy. And we get to look to him because he died for us and because he rose again on the third day. You need to understand that. And you need to be able to explain it. The gift is free for you who will follow Jesus. Romans 10, 9 through 10, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. But those who will not believe, they are condemned already. If you are not a Christ follower, stop worrying about whether people are judging you. Your friends and neighbors are not who you should fear. You should fear God who has condemned you already because you are a sinner, but offers you salvation. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's there for you. You should fear God who has done everything possible to bring you back to peace with him who has strived and given his life and rose again for you. Judgment is coming for those whose faith is not in Jesus Christ, but everlasting life is coming for those whose faith is in Jesus Christ. That is what you need to focus on when people talk about Matthew 7, 1, and judge not lest ye be judged. They need to understand that you're not here to condemn them. That is the last thing in the world that you want, and it's not what God wants either. He doesn't desire that any should be lost. He wants you to tell them about the gospel of his grace so that his judgment does not come upon them. That's where I would take that. As Peter preached in Acts chapter two, and with many other words, he testified and exhorted them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. It's Acts 2, 40 through 41. I want to see a revival, people. I want to see a revival of confession and repentance and seeking the Lord. I want to see people stop trying to avoid the judgment of others and confess their sins. Because 1 John 1:9 tells us that we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if I didn't have that, I could not stand here. I could not sit here. I would, be, I would go. I would be dead. I could not stand under my own sin. But praise God that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confess your sins. Let's have some revival. Judgment can be avoided by confessing the Lord Jesus and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. It's that simple. That is the message for those who would twist the Bible to avoid the judgment of people. The point of the passage is about whose jurisdiction it is to actually judge Now, if you took just this, I actually have two more that I was going to do today, but we're not going to have time. So let's talk about this. We'll we'll take those next week, Lord willing. If you took just this verse, because it comes up so often, whether it's on social media or whether it's in your friends or your family or whatever, where where judgment, Christians are so judgmental. (sighs) Some of them are, by the way, but we're not. We're not judgmental, we're not here to condemn. We will call truth, truth, and falsehood, falsehood. We will call right, right, and wrong, wrong. But we also understand ourselves to be sinners. A hypocrite would have to say, I know what's right and wrong, and I've always done what's right every time. That's the last thing any of us are saying, I hope, to God. Because I know you people, okay? So I know that's not the case. And mostly I know me, and I know that's not the case. We're not hypocrites. We admit our absolute 100% need for Jesus. It's not hypocrisy, it's reality. But yes, when people come and bring false ideas, particularly harmful ideas, the things that they're teaching in public schools these days, the things that they're saying out loud on television, on the news, and whatever, I'm going to stand up and say that's false. Evil, perverse, and ugly. Not because I'm an angry preacher who's dabbing my head, "Ah, you know, those those guys. You've seen those guys. That's not me. That's not me. I'm working on getting fat enough to do it so I can sweat more when I'm up here. I just feel like the drama's better. We're gonna work on that. My wife's real happy about it. So she's not. That's not who we are. We are not condemners, but we are judgers in the sense that we have judgment. You have the Holy Spirit. That you might be able to judge good and evil. It's an obvious thing. It's an obvious thing. You need to help people understand, because you may be the only Christ follower they know, that you are not judgmental. You have good discernment and good judgment, but what your whole thing is is try to tell people about Jesus so they can avoid real judgment, real condemnation that we all deserve. Me first, me most. And yet Jesus' death and resurrection was powerful enough even for me. And I want people to know that. And you should want people to know that.